Well, good morning. It is, it is good to be in the house of the Lord, whether we are masked. It is good to see your face. It is one thing to prepare a sermon in the quietness of darkness. It's another thing to actually see the faces that you'll be preaching to. In a real way, it amps me up. Because I know if you are like me and you watch what is going on in our world, you don't want to be alone. And more than that, you want to hear a word from the Lord. You want to hear him speak into this chaos. Not as a politician, not as one who simply says, I'm going to give a new law. But someone that says, I'm in control over all things. And I have conquered chaos. And I will conquer the chaos, both out there and in here. And that's what our psalm is referring to this morning. It's referring to the lordship of Jesus, the reign of Jesus, the enthronement of Jesus Christ, the ascended Jesus Christ, the one who reigns above the chaos that is going on right now. And that's what I want us to see, is that Jesus is our conquering king. Jesus, he rules and he reigns even now. So let's pray. Father, I, we beg you, we plead with you, O Lord, to speak mightily from your word, even if it is through an individual like myself. O Lord, come down, minister to our hearts in matchless ways. Speak to our hearts, O oh Lord, in ways that, aren't, that are unplanned, that aren't practiced. O oh Lord, penetrate into this darkness. Shine light into this darkness, Lord, and speak a wonderful word to our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So it was, early September, it was early September 1914 in a town called Marne, or Marne, however you say it, France. German troops were advancing upon the British soldiers, a, a battle which the British troops experienced tremendous pressure from the, Brit from the Germans, on which the Germans experienced enormous losses. This battle was famously called the Battle of Marne. And I'll listen to what one, how one British soldier described it. The Battle of Marne was hard, long work, following a long and terrible retreat. But it was a glorious victory. We had many privations but also many compensations. And we were always cheerful and very often singing. Isn't that striking? That in the midst of a, of a battle, ought there be terror? Ought there be panic? Complaint? Shouldn't the dominant expression of the moment be fear? Why sing when you can complain? Why sing when you can fret? You see, that is the point of the Psalter as a whole. That is from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. They are songs in the midst of our earthly battles. These songs are righteous rebellions against the ways of this world. Not only that, the Psalms are an anatomy of the Christian soul. They are with the psychology of, of faith in a world gone mad. When the great physician unzips your soul, Here's what you will discover. A faith perplexed at itself 
and the world, but a faith that rises above the fray and looks to Jesus. But even more, even more so than that, even more profound than that, the Psalms are not just a rebellion against the ways of this world. They're not only just an anatomy of our soul, they are an anatomy of Christ's soul. They are the expression of his soul. If Jesus were in his earthly ministry right now, he would be sitting in the pew with you, singing to his father at the top of his lungs. He would be singing for you on your behalf when the sorrows of your heart multiplied and you were unable to sing. That's your Jesus. That's the one who reigns. In the midst of our earthly toil, in the midst of our earthly battle, in the midst of all this chaos that's going on right now that's surrounding us, a pandemic and a race war, we have reason to sing. We have a reason to sing that the world looks at and should marvel at. Why, Christian, do you sing when you should be running? Why, Christian, do you keep believing? We have every reason to because we have a risen Savior. Let me move on with this battle of Marne a little longer. The same soldier previously mentioned recounted this part. He said this, We often saw Sir John French and General Joffrey, and I can tell you that when our own great field marshal appeared, it was as good as a victory for us, for we fairly worship him. As a thorough gentleman and the friend of every soldier, he used to come into the trenches with his hands in his pockets and take no more notice of the German shell bullets, which were bursting and flying about him, than if they were peas shot by little boys. The very sight of the great field marshal, the very confidence that he exuded in the middle of the battle, he stood tall as they were laid low. And the sight of him standing tall brought them confidence, so much so that they said it was like victory. In that moment, what was the one thing conquering the surrounding chaos? Certainly, it was the British Army laying waste to our enemies. But I want us to see something peculiar and spectacular here. When the men, the troops, looked up and saw the great field marshal, it was victory for them. It was the sight of this great man that brought them a sense of victory. And that's just the point. The sight of the reigning Lord Jesus is victory as he himself, speaking to his disciples, said this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. And notice what he says, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say I will, wait for it. He says I have. And then John, in the same vein, he says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, you put those two together, you have a, a wonderful theology, a wonderful doctrine, which we call union with Christ, which can be summed up like this for our purposes here this morning. Christ's victory is our victory. It's yours right now. So that is what I want us to to experience this morning. I want us to see, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to see that Jesus Christ is our conquering king. He really has overcome the world. He really has. And our faith, as it clings to him, amidst the chaos of this world and amidst the chaos in our personal lives, clings to a sure 
victory. So let's, let's look at our text this morning. Psalm 93, verses 1 through 5. First, I want us to consider the context for clarity purposes. The context of this psalm. Let me call it mapping out the message, so to speak. Now, let me give you a brief lay of the land before we dive into the mix of things. Now, I'm taking a big risk here. I'm a, I'm a fresh, out of seminary, young man. And I'm in danger of missing the forest for the trees and causing you to miss the forest for the trees and of preaching a structure rather than the Savior. I greatly understand the danger which I'm jumping into, but it is a risk worth taking. Let me give a defense. Recall your high school or college years, specifically math class. For some of us, that was just as recently as a few months ago. For others, well, a while ago. But think of your math class, specifically trigonometry. If you haven't taken trigonometry, just think of a very hard class. But for our purposes, trigonometry, I still have a little bit of PTSD every time I think of trigonometry. It was very, very hard. And do you remember the, the acronym? We call it SOHCAHTOA, S-O-H-C-A-H-T-O-A. And that was the formula on how you would solve these problems. Sine, sine, over, sine equals opposite over hypotenuse. Cosine equals adjacent over hypotenuse. Tangent equals opposite over adjacent. Whew, take a deep breath. Now remember, sitting in class, watching the teacher rigorously scramble, writing out, explaining as best she could the problem, and there at, the, at the speed of light, it seemed like she came to a conclusion, the answer. And I remember being left bewildered. I didn't see how she got to the answer because I didn't understand the problem. And if you don't understand the problem, the answer won't make sense. That's exactly what's going on here in the entire Psalter. These aren't just a random collection of, of beautiful psalms and sayings and prayers. There's an st- overarching story here, which, of which Psalm 93 is within. There's an overarching problem that the Psalter presents that Psalm 93 directly responds to. So let me briefly lay out this Psalter. Briefly, bear with me. Here we go. We'll use an acronym myself, not Sakatoa, but Pepsi. P E P S I. Pepsi, like drink. P. The psalm starts off with a path to blessedness, and that is obedience to the Lord, to the law of the Lord. E. Enthroned, a throne of a righteous king is the answer to evil. Psalm 2. Pro, the, there are problems in life, the other P. And the overarching question is this, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer in vain? That is, why do we struggle as Christians? And why does it look like the wicked are prospering? S, sorrow over an absent king and an empty throne. We see that in, directly in Psalm 89. And then lastly, the response here is, I am your king, and I occupy an eternal throne. That's the, that, that, is the, that is the acronym of the entire Psalter. That is the problem. That is the message of the Psalter. The problem 
is that when you look back at the beginning, the Psalter says, blessed is the man who loves the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That's the promise. But Christian, do you feel blessed? Do you experience daily blessedness, daily happiness? Or can you say, I struggle with understanding why reading this this book brings happiness times? Why reading this book can solve the problem there on CNN or whatever news network you watch? Why reading this book is the most important thing that I could read every single day? That church on Sunday is heavenly. We wrestle with it too. We wrestle with it. And that's the story of our lives, isn't it? Isn't it fascinating that the very structure and flow of the psalm speaks to the very ebb and flow of your experience? And doesn't it strike you as divine that a book can with surgical precision tell you the problem and offer you the perfect solution? Our voting, our policies, our protesting, our protesting, all riots, all cries for injustice, they all point to this ultimate fact of which the Psalter, which Psalm 93 speaks to. We desperately need righteousness to rule. If enemies are to be conquered, if injustice is to be met with justice, if men and women are, to be, are going to live in, in peacefully in the land, God tells me and he tells you, you need a king, a king to conquer the chaos and to rule righteously. And he says, I am your king. Now let's finally dive into the text. Now understanding the problem that presents us and seeing that the Psalter's problem is very well much our problem, which should tell us that the Psalter's answer is also our answer. So let's look at this, these, these two sections in two ways. He reigns and conquers the chaos out there. And secondly, he reigns and conquers the chaos in here. He reigns and conquers the chaos there, and he reigns and conquers the chaos in here. So first, look at me. Look with me. The starter starts off, the Lord reigns. This is within a section of, of enthronement songs where you see from 93 to 97, either kingly language or this very phrase, the Lord reigns. It is Yahweh, the, the, the faithful one. The one who's in covenant, the one who is, I've heard it put this way, he's a stubborn God. Stubborn in the sense that he refuses to stop being the God he needs to be to you. He refuses to stop being the God he needs to be for you. So the, the word Lord is a jam-packed phrase. So imagine that stubborn God who reigns righteously sitting, sitting on a throne in which is eternal. That's the picture. The Lord reigns. But the imagery goes on. We see that this, this, this faithful Lord, this righteous king, is, is, we see him in battle array. Notice the, the language. He is clothed. He is clothed with what? Majesty. 
And he is also clothed and girded with strength. Clothed and girded with majesty, clothed and girded with strength. This is battle array. The picture is of a, of a king going to battle and he dresses himself ready for war. Just think of those movies you've seen of medieval times and the kings are, are, are decked out in all their royal gear, but they're leading the front lines, charging for battle. Here is a Lord, high and mighty, who is not above. hear me clearly? Excellent. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yes, I can tell it was a little spotchy. So back to our point. Here's this king who is not just up in his castle, sitting on his throne, aloof and dismissed from the battles, battles of his life. But he's in the thick of things. He's in the thick of the battle. This is a mighty king, but when we bring in the rest of the New Testament, we see something actually very striking. It's, it's more than striking. It's, it's moving, but it's more than moving. It's, it's, it, it's confounding in a sense. It's something that First Peter says, a thing in which the angels long to look into. It's the very humility of this king referring to. The humbleness, his, his mightiness is not just a great display of, of muscle and bronze. But his reign is also this humble reign where he, the, the God who existed for eternity, the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power, would take on human flesh and take on the posture and very position of a servant. And that was his answer to our problem. We are Americans. We don't like weakness. We don't like it at all. We balk at the idea of being weak. As a matter of fact, if you were around then in 2001, a little bit after 9-11, one of the generals, the main general, had this campaign. And if you remember the phrase, he called it shock and awe. The shock and awe campaign. The idea is we are going to Blast them to smithereens until they give up. Day and night, hour after hour, we're going to send bomb after bomb. That's the American way. That's all we know. But that's not God's way. Certainly God, it's, in times past, was shocking all. Think of the, think of the, the exodus, all the, all the plagues. Yes, Shock and awe. But all that was pointing to a side of God in which we Christians revel in, and that is his humility. Recall when Jesus, before the night of his crucifixion, does something in which the disciples balked at. He got on his knees in the dirt wrapped a towel around his waist and began washing filthy feet. This is your reigning Lord, and this is how he conquers the chaos. 
This is what he's all about. This is his heart. It is not beneath God to humble himself. This Jesus who, before his incarnation, was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. He existed in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. He was completely satisfied, completely perfect and blessed. And what does he do? He takes on the posture of a servant and enters into this world, into this madness. And he says this, it's going to be a cross that's going to conquer the chaos. It's going to be a cross on my back for you. His battle array, it's mighty, yes, the Lord reigns, but it's also humble. The same Lord that reigns, as I have echoed over and over again, is the same Lord who washes feet. That's where we see his majesty. But we also see not only his him clouded in battle array, we see his sovereign sway. Look at the, the, the latter half of verses 1 and 2. Not only is he girded with strength, but it says, Indeed, the world is firmly fixed and established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So here we have is a, a, a king who, who reigns and is in battle on behalf of his people and who wins victories on behalf of his people, but it also points and says, This same king governs the entire cosmos. Not a single thing that happens in your life, not a single politician risen up to government, not a single event that happens in this world or in the far stretches of the universe happens outside of his direct control. It may look chaotic to us, but God is not affected by it. He doesn't sit up there. He's not sitting up there wondering what's the next move, what policy should I push next, who should I bring up to to solve this madness. No, he sits in the heavens, and as Psalm 2 points out, he laughs whenever the world rages in vain. Not laughing because he's tickled. He's laughing because he's sovereign, and he knows that their threats, their armies, are nothing. Nothing. direct control over all things. We see him in battle array. We see his sovereign sway. And we also see this, this, this emphasis on the throne. It says, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that the psalmist focuses so much on a throne? Isn't a throne just a, a fancy seat? Isn't it just a fancy seat? You know, it's, it's expensive, it's gold, it has, you know, it's layered in gold, it has jewels on it, that's all it is. But the, a throne points to power, a throne points to the one who sits on the throne. If he is righteous, then everything else will be righteous. So what, is, what does the whole Bible have to say about this, this, this throne? 
As I said before, it, is, it signifies his universal rule. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, Psalms 103 says. His throne loves righteousness and justice. Hear those words. His throne loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice, meaning he wants to reward the righteous and he wants to punish the wicked. Whenever there is injustice, God hates it. Whenever there is justice, God loves it. It's the very foundation of his throne, the, the, the text says. The very foundation. Meaning it's just, it's a part of the very nature and fabric of who God is. He's a lover of righteousness and justice. He can do nothing else but be righteous and justice and just. Nothing else. It's impossible. Like it's impossible for water to flow upward. It's, a, it's, it's insane to think that water could flow upward. No, it flows downward just in the same way the natural flow of this throne, the natural flow of this rule, this one that is going to be just in all ways and righteous in all ways. But also his throne is a gracious throne. Let us then with confidence draw near to this throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. That this throne, yes, it is high above the heavens, as this, as this psalm says. But God is not aloof to your problems. You are not out of sight and out of mind. He's not up there just pushing laws. He actually bids you to come to him. And Christian, you have a level of access to a king's room that only his sons and daughters would have. When you pray, God is not... What did he say? What did she say? I missed it. No, God hears it. God stoops down again. He's not, it's not beneath him to humble himself and to listen to your every cry and to grant you and give you the mercy and grace you need. It's a throne of grace. Not only do we see our Lord dressed in battle array, and not only do we see his sovereign sway, we also see that he holds all threats at bay. Forgive me for all the rhyming, but I hope you can remember it. He keeps all threats at bay. Look at Psalm, look at, look at verse 3. The psalmist shouts, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. Verse 4, more than the sounds of many waters. Then the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now, in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew portion of the Bible, the Old Testament, water for, for, for a Hebrew was a sign of judgment. They weren't water people. They weren't water people. Just think of all the issues they had with water. The great flood. The crossing of the Red Sea. Signs of judgment. So here the, the, the picture is this, this, these great tumultuous waves rising up like, like, like the floods, rising up like the, the, the towers of water that, that surrounded them as they were walking through the Red Sea on dry land that would eventually crush their enemies. I don't know if you've ever, ever been to the West Coast, 
and it, you have seen how big the waves are at times. Eight, ten foot, sometimes higher swells. Massive waves. And if you've ever been there, you know that they are far more spectacular when you see them from a distance. Because the closer you get to the wave, the more threatening they become to you. They are incessant. They are, they are relentless. They pound and pound and pound, and it's loud. And you, can't, you can barely hear the sound of your own voice. They rise higher and higher, and if there are rocks in the ocean, they come smashing against the rocks over and over and over and over and over again. A constant pounding of these huge and frightening waves. And the picture is, that's what life can be like for the Christian. Pandemic. Quarantine. Lives lost. Jobs lost. Economy falling and failing. Schools canceled. In some cases, marriage is failing. Race wars. Political turmoil. And the list goes on. 2020 seems to have to not been our friend. It's like those constant waves pounding and pounding and pounding. And the, psal and the psalmist is crying, oh Lord, the, the waves are lifting up their voice. They're rising higher and higher. But it's like he's, he, just in that same breath, he speaks to the wave and he says, but the Lord on high is mighty. The Lord on high, those waves that may be crashing against me, they do not affect God. The Lord on high is mighty. So not only do we see the Lord in his battle array and his sovereign sway and that he holds threats at bay, we also see that holiness is what is actually the church's display. Holiness. Look at verse 5. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. What is the house of the Lord? It is here. Now, Christian, look around. Do you look and feel holy? Does this look like a sacred place to you? Doesn't it look rather average? We're average people. We aren't decked out in gold. We aren't sitting here warriors after a great victory, or, or are we? Or is this? No, the very fact of this place, the fact that God stamps on us, the adjective that he stamps on us, he stamps on you, and he says, holy, because I have made you holy. Holy, because I have made you holy. This is, the, this is the answer to our problems. This, is not, this isn't to undermine our duty as citizens to, to vote. It doesn't undermine any of that. Our, our desire as citizens to see injustice be met with swift justice. This doesn't undermine the fact that we are getting ready to go and peacefully, some of us, to go and peacefully stand out there and pray in solidarity with our brothers and sisters across denominations for justice to reign. But what it does say is that there is a fact and there is a truth 
that does not change according to the whims of society, doesn't change with every hashtag that we see on Instagram, doesn't change with every political up, uprising and turmoil. The fact is this, you are holy. And because you are united to me, though the waves may be sinking you down, you are united to a covenant head who rises above the waters. And Christian, if your head is above water, you cannot drown. And you will not drown. Because he's there. And he's also here. And that's our next point. Not only do we see that the Lord reigns and conquers out there, but he reigns and conquers in here. In Psalm 94, verse 17 through 22, specifically 17 through 19, it says, if the Lord had not been my help, the same Lord who reigns in the throne, he says, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations cheer or delight or bless my soul. The same God who is up here reigning and ruling, and he rules over all the worlds, he makes sure that the nine planets make sure they, 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 they rotate properly and all their moons rotating properly. He maintains all the stars in the heavens. And he knows them by name, and yet he says, this same God listens and is concerned about you. When you pray at night, children, teenagers, when you lift up your voice at night and you thank God for this day, and you ask God to help you, he hears you. He actually hears you. And when it seems like the weight of the world is piling on top of you like dust on a car, and it gets heavier and heavier, that's when the Lord, in, in numerous ways, numerous sovereign ways, swoops in and he cheers up your heart. Maybe it's a sermon, maybe it's a song. Maybe it's a verse you read. Maybe it's simply being around another brother or sister who listens to you. Maybe it's a text that you received from a brother and sister and said, I'm praying for you. That's the sovereign Lord ordering all things and moving in your way, in your way, in your way, in your way. And he's saying, not only do I have it in control, it, it control out there, but I have it in control also in here. Amen? Let's pray.